So we live in an age that that really hits it when when we're too confident of our own beliefs. It, it's seen as a bad thing if if we're dogmatic or assertive about our views. And and even in the church here in the United Kingdom, the, the style of preaching has sort of become apologetic, not not meaning defending our faith, but meaning preachers sort of feel the need to say, I'm sorry, provide an out for their hearers. I, I will always remember the first moment I heard a preacher, I should say not, I should say not my minister, but heard a preacher in Northern Ireland say, and those are my thoughts about this passage, but maybe you think something else. And that was the close sermon. And I realized that there has grown a timid view of preaching in this land. And to be frank, I think the long shadow of broad, open Anglicanism has infected even the supposedly doctrinally rigid Presbyterians. And the passage before us tonight calls into question that way of thinking about the proclamation of the gospel. Now, certainly, certainly there's gentleness and humility needed in preaching the word. But Paul, in fact, argues, as I'm sure you noted, Paul argues that his gospel proclamation was successful in Thessalonica because he was bold with the truth. And so, to catch us up, so let's take a second though, where are we? What's this book about? We're in a series of First and Second Thessalonians. Paul and Silas had planted a church in Thessalonica, but they'd moved on to minister elsewhere. And yet, Paul, the, the ever-mindful pastor, was still concerned about them. So he, he sent Timothy to check on them. And as it turned out, they were enduring hardship and oppression. So Paul put pen to parchment to encourage them so that they would keep hoping in Christ Jesus during this difficult time. And he raised three themes in chapter 1 that are going to resonate throughout this whole book. The imitation of godly examples, which is the heart of this passage before us, but also the doctrine of election and the second coming of Christ. And note carefully, as I tried to hammer last time, but will again, all three of these themes were specifically meant to give hope to troubled Christians. So this book is a book of words of hope. And so, as we come to our passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, the main point is Christians should hold fast to their callings for godliness because Paul's gospel proclamation in Thessalonica was effective because it was a bold proclamation of the truth. That. I'm told that my main points are too long. Christians 
should hold fast to their calling for godliness. Because Paul's gospel proclamation in Thessalonica was effective. Because it was a bold proclamation of the truth. And we'll see that in three points. Power in preaching, practice in preaching, and purpose in preaching. So first, power in preaching. So if we can think back to last week, the the main point in chapter 1 was that Paul thanked God because there was evidence and fruit of election in these Thessalonian Christians. And so he was assured of their salvation. And so then, here in chapter 2, he begins, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And so, so where Paul had previously comforted them with his confidence that God had chosen them, now he looked to remind them. So previously he was about his confidence that they were chosen. Now he seeks to remind them that even they know how effective the apostolic ministry was in their midst. And the fact that the apostolic ministry was successful should further give these Thessalonians hope and should urge them to pursue godliness in times of struggle. So, he's trying to push them forward in faith by showing them that his ministry was successful and it was successful because of its content and his conduct. So, bold proclamation of the content of the gospel was successful and it was helped by Paul's good conduct among them. And so this point here, this first point, explores how Paul argued that that his ministry was successful and with power because he was bold with the truth. Let's let's consider how how Paul's boldness brought effectiveness to his preaching. He so we're going to turn to the text now. He he reminds the Thessalonians, that even though they know that Paul's ministry was not in vain. Now, what is that about? He, he makes this interesting statement in verse 2. But, even though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at, at Philippi, no, still we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And, and this statement centers the assertion of preaching the gospel of God with boldness despite opposition, and it contrasts it with laboring in vain. Do you see that? Do you see that? This point, as indicated by the first word, verse 2, but is distinguished from laboring in vain. So Paul sees a direct conflict between ineffective attempts at ministry and preaching with boldness. Boldness and ineffectiveness are opposites. And 
I wonder, so let me ask you, have you thought about ministry like that before? If someone had asked you, what is the opposite of vain ministry, would your answer have been bold proclamation of the gospel? Because that does seem to be what Paul is saying here. But he also, further, he gave us reason why they came with boldness in verses 3 and 4. If you look there. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul was was filled with boldness to proclaim the gospel of God for or because he wasn't peddling message that he had invented or that could be tainted with error or sinfulness or deception, but, but a message that had been directly given to him by God to spread throughout the Gentile lands. And so he had been entrusted. What a magnificent word. He had been entrusted with this glorious gospel, and he knew its value. He knows, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He was just a fragile vessel. But God had given him the treasure that was powerful, a treasure-laden message. And that message, if proclaimed with boldness, would shatter unbelief and bring people to God. And so to sort of illustrate this, I wonder if you've ever gotten one of those junk chain emails that that says something like, you know, if you want three years of good luck, forward this to 25 people. And we know that the promise of those emails is rubbish, right? I hope, uh, really. You should know it now, because I just told you. If you didn't before, you've heard it here. And it doesn't come with any authority. Who can back that up? The 400th person down the line? Who are they? So what do we do with those messages? We delete them immediately. Because it's a worthless message, and it would be foolish, not to mention a waste of your time, to pass it on. But, what about that once-in-a-lifetime moment, for some of us maybe, when, when you get a letter, and at the top it says, from the desk of Her Majesty the queen 
And it wants you to tell everyone in your neighborhood that she's erased their debt. What do we do then? Well, that's a message you're going to be eager to share. And you will declare it with conviction. Because, one, I mean, first, because it's good news. People should want to hear this. And you're excited to tell them. And two, if anyone questions you, all you have to do is point to the word of the queen. And so the point, this illustration, is that just like you would be confident with a a message from the queen, we can see why, just why, Paul reacts with boldness when he knows that he has good news delivered from God Himself. He he is filled with confidence to announce this good news. And he's not going to back down from this message one little bit because he knows that boldness in God is part of, part of what makes his ministry effective. Power in preaching is God adding his strength to our efforts when we declare the gospel, that simple message, with boldness. That brings us to our second point. Practice in preaching. So, in the first point, we considered essentially verses 1 to 4, roughly. And how Paul preached with boldness because his message came from God and his boldness helped make his preaching effective. And in this point now, we're going to think about verses 5 to 10, roughly, how Paul backs up his claim to have been bold in preaching with an account of his upright behavior among the Thessalonians. So I, I am sure that all of you would have noticed as we read this passage that Paul says a lot of good things about the way that he and Silas and Timothy conducted their ministry in Thessalonica. Which is sort of striking, isn't it? For the guy who talks so seriously about the depth of sin, he says some nice things about himself. And that raises a few questions, doesn't it? Paul, is Paul just celebrating his own godliness here? Of course you know that I'm going to say that that is not the right explanation. But I hope it does help us ask what his purpose was in writing this. And Paul tells us his purpose in writing uh, this list of resume items in verse 7. And essentially it's to elicit a response, to require a response. And so let's read. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And the point that he wanted to prove was that their ministry had been one that was caring for the Thessalonians and that they had worked to give to them 
rather than receive from them. And now, why is that important at all? And the reason is so we have to remember context. We're going to talk about a little bit of Greek culture. Again, so remember, Paul is writing in an age of these traveling itinerant philosophers who peddled lessons in their own views to make money. And we even see in Acts 17 that we read together last week how Paul finds himself in the midst of the of Athens surrounded by these philosophers and giving his gospel appeal among the philosophers for sale in Greece. And now, as we think about that, given that Greece was full of these traveling philosophers trying to make money, and Paul likely wrote 1 Thessalonians shortly after his encounter with the philosophers of Athens, it's likely on his mind to show how he differs from this kind of thing as he travels and spreads the gospel. And and so the first thing that Paul did by recounting his practice here is showing how he was not like those who tried to sell their philosophy. And that's why he wrote in, in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And the, the theme of boldness is there again, isn't it? And he stated that he did not use words that would flatter them. And instead we know that he was insistent with the truth. But further, he said he didn't come with greed. Showing he wasn't in this for the money. And we know, don't we, that Paul's typical, usual practice was to work in towns where he was planting churches as he reminded the Thessalonians here that he worked day and night. And so although Paul received financial support from churches after he left to plant other churches, he did not live off their financial givings while while he was there. And so Paul, unlike the traveling philosophers, had not taken money from them. Which should make it clear that he was primarily concerned with getting them the message. He wasn't just giving them information in exchange for money. His primary purpose was get them the message. His commitment to the distribution of the gospel apart from any compensation was was part of the reason that he had success. And then Paul's second purpose. So first purpose, distinguish himself from these traveling philosophers who sold their views. The second purpose in outlining the resume. I know that we're supposed to call it a CV here. I, I do. That was pointed out to me today. I know that, but I was trying to get lots of R's in the title. So, so the purpose of outlining his CV 
of his conduct was to give a motivating record of exemplary behavior. And so there, there was actually a common letter-writing convention in Paul's day of including this sort of account as a way to spur the reader on towards that sort of behavior. So it was sort of like a written role model. And so not only is Paul distinguishing his ministry from frauds, but he's also pushing the Thessalonians to strive for godliness in these ways. And now, what I want to point out is is I think that this helps us think about our own attempts at ministry. Doesn't it? Because then, just like now, the, the world does not like the idea that salvation is exclusive and that God only accepts us through Jesus Christ. It's not a new thing that people dislike that. And the world also does not like that Christians have specific moral commitments and that we think it's sinful to deviate from those standards. Man, would it not be so easy just to soften our stance on those things and and try to make our positions a bit more acceptable for those outside the church? Is it not just attractive to say, well, yeah, I guess that's what we believe, but here's how I want to put it. but effective proclamation of the gospel means boldness with the truth. But it also means gentleness, as we see here. Paul's older brother, note note this really carefully, because I know where this could go. Paul's bold approach to ministry does not mean harshness. And we do really well to remember that. Boldness boldness means stating the truth clearly even though people won't like it. Stating the truth clearly even though people won't like it. It doesn't mean screaming in people's faces. And so we, we have to learn, as Paul said, not just to share the message, but to share our lives with one another so that we give ourselves to this work in gentleness. The, the old adage, share the gospel at all times and when necessary use words, is false. The gospel is good news and good news has to be spoken But our conduct can make the content of our message more convincing. Paul outlined practices that made his preaching more effective and also provided instances of Christian conduct to motivate the Thessalonians to imitate him. 
practice in preaching is that godliness in ministry does help help make our bold message even more powerful. And that brings us to our third and final point. Purpose in preaching. So, first point should have shown us that we, we don't need to be fancy and we don't need to be overly articulate or philosophically informed to be used by God. Instead, we just need to understand the gospel and outline the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. That He was crucified for our sins, justified, or resurrected for our justification. If we can say that clearly, powerful start for ministry. And then the second point, we noted how Paul distinguished himself from traveling philosophers. And he was not concerned about money, but about announcing a message. And his godly conduct helped make helped make his message effective. And in this point, I want, I want to press a little further into that idea that this passage was also meant to be an example of conduct for the Thessalonians that they should imitate. And we'll focus here essentially on verses 10 to 12 with a particular focus on on verse 12. And so, so read these verses with me, if you will. You are witnesses, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And here, here, Paul drew together his point about various aspects of his practice in ministry and and summarized that as holy and righteous and blameless. And then we see how he wanted the Thessalonians and certainly, certainly he would want us to imitate that when he tells us that he was like a father Gently instructing his children. Because don't parents teach their children hoping that that sort of behavior will come about? And so he wrote, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, stacking up those verbs, trying to press in the fact that he really wants them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And here's where I want to really work out some of the implications of this passage. So I hope the rest has been useful and and here we're going to turn. What does this do for us? How do we respond to this? And first, I want to ask you, did you notice how Paul emphasized distinctly That the place where we are called is God's own 
kingdom and glory. It's a little bit more than just saying into God's kingdom and glory. There's that extra bit, God's own kingdom and glory. He is leaning heavily on the notion that this kingdom really belongs to God. And so this is more than referring to the kingdom of of Great Britain or something like that. This, This is making the point that God brings people basically into His own home. It's His real property. It is God's real personal ownership over this kingdom. And we get called into that. And there should be a a really pointed takeaway here. I mean, really pointed. You don't really belong there. It's God's. And we're sinners. This is not a kingdom where we have the natural right to reside. The kingdom of God is God's personal dwelling. The kingdom of His perfect, consummate rule. And none of us are born as citizens there. We we are not born with the right to come sit at God's table. So to put an even finer point on this, for those of you who aren't Christians, God has not set a place for you at His table. God will not bend over backwards to make comfortable in His house, and He is not thrilled with everything you do. Nor does He think you are immensely special. You are quite, in fact, the opposite under His wrath. Because your presence, any presence you have in His kingdom, is as a traitor and as a rebel. And this, though, take careful note here, this gives you every reason to come to Christ. if you would respond to the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God who became a human being so that He could die to forgive your sin. If you would trust in Him and His work, if you would relinquish your self-reliance and place yourself in the hands of the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, then God, in fact, does have a place at His table for you. The place where the greatest feast of all time waits for us. And He would welcome you joyously with open arms into His kingdom and would lavish you with the riches of His grace. He would give you a new home and a new family if you would come to Jesus. For those of you who are Christians, what is here for us? What what do we know about this calling here? 
Well, for those of you who know your Bibles, we know that when God calls, it's effectual. It happens. It brings something about. We know that when Scripture refers to God's call in the Gospel, that it means a call that causes a response of faith. It makes it happen. We read in in John 10, the words of our Lord, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Pay close attention. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Christ came to find His sheep. Those that the Father had given Him to save. One of the themes of this book, the elect. And Christ will call His sheep by name. And they will respond. When Christ calls through the preaching of the Gospel, His people, His own, will hear and will come to Him. And Paul pushes further ahead. Still though, we have one more thing to note. That he wanted this effectual calling that God had issued for His people to remind you, Christian believer, remind you that you need to walk worthy of that calling. Walk worthy of the calling of God. Now take pay careful attention. I'm about to parse this out really finely. You certainly are not saved by your works. I am emphasizing your need to be holy, but you are not saved by your works. They will not get you any closer to God than if you don't believe in Christ. But, you certainly are saved for good works. You are not saved by them, but you are saved for them. And so in light of that, we need to pursue after good works because it's the reason for which we are called so that we would do them we cannot presume that we are christians if we do not love holiness because of this verse and so many others like it if we do not long if we do not have that yearning desire to grow in holiness and godliness then we cannot assume that we've been called But if you have faith in Christ, then it means you have been justified. You know what that means? Declared righteous in God's sight. An irrevocable declaration that God sees you as righteous. And you have been made a citizen of the new creation. And... You know, here, here in this church, this is such a, a richly international group, isn't it? I mean, it's a wonderful thing. 
We've got people from everywhere. And here's how that makes this a really easy point to make. So this really international group understands one thing, don't we? That, that when we join a new culture, what do we have to do? We have to assimilate, don't we? we we've got to join in and learn how things work in our new society. We've got to become like our new kingdom. And so just like when we join a new culture, when we join the new culture of God's kingdom, when we are brought from the old creation and made new creation, so we have to pursue holiness. And although imperfectly, it will be imperfect. And we know that. But even though it's imperfect, we have to endeavor to strive to live lives worthy of the God who has called us. Do rest assured, Christian. I mean, this burden is light. Jesus, Jesus promised us that. Because God has sent us His Spirit. And He will enable you for this life for these good works that He prepares in advance for you to do. Christ died for you. I mean, that's the foundation of all of this. The Son of God entered this creation and climbed the cross to make you His. And He will return to overturn this age and install His kingdom in fullness. That is massive. There is no bigger truth in the universe than those things. And if He will do all that, how much more will He walk with you now? Here in everyday life. He will be with you. Assuring you of His forgiveness and equipping you for His service. Let's pray.